Welcome to Indie Insider presented by Black Shell Media. This is the weekly show where we speak with indie video game developers, publishers, and industry professionals about their projects, their stories, and their advice to others. I'm your host, Logan Schultz, and today on the show I sit down with none other than David Brevin, best known as the creator of Diablo. Since Diablo, however, David has returned to his indie roots, forming the one-man indie studio, Greybeard Games. David and I chat about his impressive history in the industry, his thoughts on indie games, his upcoming projects, and, of course, his advice for others. He even tells me how he really feels about the original Diablo being recreated inside of Diablo 3. Before we get to the interview, however, a couple of quick notes. This show is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help indie developers reach their goals and new audiences. The company also strives to offer unique, inspiring, and even educational services for developers, publishers, and gamers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you. Speaking of which, be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes and other podcast services across the internet, and please, leave a review. If you'd like to be a part of the show and share your thoughts, questions, or even request a professional to bring on the podcast, send me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com, or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. Finally, special thanks to David for joining us on the show, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for allowing us to use his song, Going Higher, in the show. And now, David Brevik. Also, I'm finding just a bit of a head cold, so uh, if I mute at all, it's just to hack up a lung. <laughs> That's quite right. Cool. Yeah, no problem at all. Welcome to Indie Insider. Today, I am talking with the one and only David Brevik. David, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing really well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how's your week been? Kind of good? You know, it's crazy? been busy, but uh, everything's going really well, so I, I can't complain. Sure. Well, David, let's go ahead. Let's just dive right into it. For those who somehow don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, I, I'll tell you about my professional career. The, uh, it began <laughs> sure. a long time ago. Uh, now, this is my 25th. Oh my God, it is my 25th year in the industry. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, it's not that surprising because it's Diablo's 20th anniversary as well. So, uh, uh, yeah, I started in 1991 and, uh, and have worked at a variety of companies. But, you know, I'm best known for creating Diablo and Diablo 2. And, uh, and I think that that's kind of a, a very small nutshell about my, uh, my career. But it's been long and varied, and I've done everything from develop games and been, you know, a, a programmer, a designer, uh, and, uh, you know, a CEO of a company and all sorts of things. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a long and varied career. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, when people talk about David Brevik, they always talk about Diablo, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously. But I guess if you're looking at the 25 year span of your career, you probably want to be defined by more than just 
Diablo, right? Oh, I don't mind being defined by Diablo. It's a good thing to be defined by. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to be a part of that, that project that, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, when you have such a uh, incredible part of your career, you know, it's great to be known uh, as somebody that is associated with such a, such a wonderful product. Sure. Well, let's go ahead and just get right through that now. Uh, obviously, um, Diablo, of course. Um, what does that feel like now? I, I think we just had an announcement at BlizzCon um, this past week that uh, the original Diablo would be um, playable in the new Diablo. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard, <laughs> that they were going to try and recreate the 16 levels of Diablo in, Dia in the Diablo 3 engine. Right. Uh, you know, but it, so it's like, it's kind of like a mod or I don't know, some mode or something like that in, in, Di in Diablo 3, where you can play kind of a, you know, a Diablo 1 version of Diablo 3, I guess. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it, but they're going to have some filter over it and the movement is, you know, in eight directions and some, you know, things like that, that make sure. it uh, kind of have this retro feel, I guess. I, I, did, I haven't had a chance to play it. I'm sure I will, but uh it's kind of it's kind of fun, and it's all being done mainly because this is the twentieth anniversary of the release of the original Diablo, uh, which was released on the last day on December thirty first, nineteen ninety six. Right. Of course. Congratulations on that, by the way. Uh, how does that feel to look back and and see? Um, well, I guess again, this game that has kind of defined your career in a way, um, being recreated and uh, being so celebrated twenty years later. Well, it's amazing that uh, that people celebrate a twenty-year-old game, uh, you know. So I, I, so first off, I guess it makes me feel a little old because that <laughs> was twenty years ago. But the, uh, you know, I think that it it is it, it's just wonderful to have been part of that magical time, uh, magical moment in gaming, and uh, it was. It's really incredible that people still feel so passionately about that game, about Diablo 2, and just about the Diablo series in general. And uh, and it's really nice that Blizzard is is acknowledging that. And I think that that's one of the things that Blizzard does really well is they really support all of their old products. They're very proud of what they've done in the past, and rightfully so. They've made just continually superb game after superb game. And, uh, you know, they support their stuff for a long time. They're very into their history. And uh, and so to see it, I think, is really wonderful. And to have been part of that was, uh, you know, is just absolutely incredible. So let's go ahead and get a little deeper into your origin story, I guess. Sure. Um, Actually, I'm based out of Iowa, and I hear you come from Madison originally. Is that correct? Yeah, well, uh, in uh, I was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, but yes, ah. my parents went to Madison, so that, I love that, that's where the uh, the origin of of me, myself, and I actually come. You know, it was <laughs> like I was born in Appleton. So, sure. How do you go from being in a tiny town, Madison? Um, or a tiny town, Wisconsin, rather, um, and then going to make Diablo. What does that uh, What does that trip look like? Uh, it, it's a long. It's a <laughs> well. It was a very strange upbringing for me, mainly because I I moved around so much. Uh, when I was growing up, I never went to school more than a, a single school more than two years my entire life. We moved really? a lot, 
And so uh, I lived all over the United States and eventually moved out here at my third high school as a junior <laughs> was out here in in California in the in the Bay Area here in San Francisco Bay Area in the east part of the base uh, in the little town called Danville that I lived and I finished up my high school career there as a junior and senior and we lived at the base of Mount Diablo and that's where the actual name comes from uh and so that's uh it, going from the you know small town Wisconsin to the Bay Area was a a varied journey where we moved many <laughs> times and really one of the reasons that uh I really was into gaming and I was really into I taught myself to program when I was uh in 6th grade on an Apple II plus my dad brought home an Apple II plus computer and I taught myself how to program in originally first in basic, but then uh, I also did learn to program assembly language and in fact made, you know, only program pretty much an assembly language for a very long time. And, uh, and uh, that, that kind of stayed consistent. That was like the one thing that really was, that, that was always there, that was always consistent that I could always fall back on was, programming and you know playing games and so as i kind of you know as we moved and we we're experiencing all of these different parts of the country and whatnot it uh was you know it was the one constant in my life and so that that really made it well my family as well but it was like the one thing that i really enjoyed that i could take with me from place to place unlike you know i couldn't keep my friends in it it's a lot different now than it was then that back then it was like I, I i lost contact with people i would never speak to them again when you left you know there were no there was no internet to email your friends or facebook or mm -hmm. anything like that or you know you didn't have cell phones and i couldn't tweet text with my friends and stuff you know there's just no way Way that I could contact these people again and so uh you know when you left you were gone from there forever really and uh and so uh you know now I think it would be a different experience but uh but that was really kind of the seeds for for my development uh, passion and once I started playing games I I knew that this was exactly what I wanted to do I remember actually uh reading an article in the National Enquirer uh, which is, you know, it was not a magazine that my family got often. I don't, I think somebody pointed it out to me actually, uh, uh, in which it was Richard Garriott, uh, was, had made a hundred thousand dollars making Ultima or Ultima two or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, Oh my God, you could, you could make games for a living. Like it was like this moment that dawned on me that, Oh, this is what I could do for a living. and I could make money. Well, then there's no reason why I'm not going to do it. There's nothing else I want to do. I love this already, but to actually make this a career, it seems like it's possible. And that, that was just really exciting. A defining moment for me really. in saying that this was really solidified. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. And that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I continue to, to love love it and be very passionate about making games. So you uh, finish up high school, you're out in California, you've learned that you can make money making games, um, and that's what you want to do. Well, sort of. <laughs> I, I tried that. Uh, you know, I actually, my first game, I actually, I made it, and I, and I took it down to the local computer store, and I <laughs> put it in a little baggie and stuff and tried to sell it. This is a little BMX game. And didn't sell a single copy. It was very sad. So, the... <laughs> so... 
<laughs> my dreams had to, to be put on hold for a little while before. <laughs> well, everyone, everyone starts somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so then when does that actually take off? I guess what happens? Well, um, you know, I, I, uh, I definitely knew what I was doing. I, I was uh, a really good programmer by the time I was in high school. I was actually working for Pac Bell, uh, doing some programming on their modem software and things like that. Okay. And, uh, and, but people didn't want to give me a job and I didn't really know how to, you know, break into the games industry. There were, it was such a small industry at that time. And there were very few people doing it that, uh, you know, it just didn't seem like, I, like I could get a job at Pac Bell being a programmer. That was kind of easy. Right. And that was not, that wasn't really the difficult part finding programming jobs, especially out in California and Silicon Valley, it was, it was pretty simple. Um, and so, uh, but actually making games wasn't that simple and nobody would really hire me because, you know, I didn't have a degree, even though I knew everything, I knew how to program and I didn't really need a degree. I mean, I, I had all the experience I needed. I, I also, it didn't help that I looked like I was 12 years old. So that, uh, you know, I, so I say I went to college to grow facial hair really was the, uh, uh, and kind of grow up a bit. And, uh, and I did, and kind of out of that, out of getting my, uh, degree in computer science, I was, uh, it, you know, recruited by Intel. Uh, they actually wanted to make me make microcode, which is the, uh, the, kind of the assembly language and the coding that's done on the actual chips. Uh, and, uh, but I didn't want to do that. Uh, instead, I just wanted to make games. And so, and, you know, I'm telling my parents I want to make games and they're like, okay, well, we'll see you, you know, living back here in six months. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh <clears throat> they were not thrilled about this decision, but, uh, you know, now I think that it's a lot different now than it was, but, uh, but it was kind of a new industry at the time. And, uh, and, so, uh, you know, I went out and I got a, I, my first game gig, a real paying job, uh, where there was a, this clip art company, uh, that, uh, was failing at the clip art business, which was not really a big business anyhow, but it was, you know, it was like little pieces of art that you can put in newsletters or presentations and things like that. They'd have flags of the world be a cd that you could a cd rom that could be full of like <laughs> images or whatever for it you could put in your presentations and things like that again this is like very early internet days so it's uh you know mosaic and and uh html and things like that that really came out right you know to a, a very end of the 80s beginning of the 90s was really when the internet became switched from being this weird thing that hooked up universities and and the military through a bunch of command line unix stuff or whatever to an a, you know a visual thing that you could go to and click on or whatever and it was the newfangled internet days so the uh the, you know cds and cd roms and things like that images weren't really available online so people will uh would buy these cds to put them in you know to, fluff up their presentations. Anyway, they, they were failing at that business, but they knew the Tremils who owned Atari at the time. And through that connection, they said, well, we've got a bunch of artists and we could make a video game uh, for the Atari Lynx. And, uh, but we just need a programmer. So they, they were looking for when they put an ad in the paper. And, uh, and so I 
said, okay, yeah, I'll come. I'll, uh, I would like to apply for that job. And I got the job and, uh, and we started working on this, on this game on the Atari Lynx called Gordo 106, the mutant lab monkey was a platformer where, you know, a monkey, a lab monkey was trying to escape from, uh, scientists. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, it was really the the Lynx hardware was amazing, and uh, it was really fun working on this project, and uh, and it was but it was obvious that this company was, uh, you know, not really being run super well, and uh, <laughs> and I was, about four or five months into working there, my paychecks started bouncing, and I was like, you know, I I just can't I can't work here. And not get paid. I got an apartment. I, I, I can't go back to, uh, you know, living at my parents and stuff. I, I actually need yeah. a paying job. But in the meantime, I had met a couple of those artists there, uh, and they were Max and Eric Schaefer, and uh, oh, yeah. brothers. And uh, they were they were doing the clip art stuff or whatever before that. And then, so at lunchtime, we would we would talk about the dreams of us making our own game company. And we, we called those talks, we called it Project Condor. Uh, and so we would, you know, as our code name, so we in front of the other owners of a very small company. There was only probably 10 people that worked there. So, you know, we, we, when we were going to talk about Project Condor, that was our secret code name for let's go talk about our company that we'll make someday. And, uh, and so we would talk about Project Condor over lunchtime and stuff like that. And then, and then uh, obviously, I, I couldn't keep working there. Max and Eric wanted to finish the the gordo game and uh and they didn't they didn't need the money as badly they had done some consulting and things like that beforehand before they worked at at uh, the fm waves clip art company and uh so they had a little nest eggs stored away and they Mm -hmm. were able to uh they were able to keep working there but i needed a job a paying job so uh i i applied to a company, the up-and-coming company called Iguana Entertainment uh, that was down in the South Bay in the, in the San Jose area in Santa Clara. And uh, and I went there. And so I was the technical director at Iguana Entertainment, and their kind of claim to fame was the NBA Jam game. Oh. Uh, there I worked on uh, a, a title called Arrow the Acrobat, and I worked on a few other things, including super high-impact football. My very first published game was super high impact football, a conversion from an arcade machine to the Sega Genesis that I did by myself in three months. Oh, wow. So that was kind of the start of the career. And then, then Iguana decided to move to Texas and I didn't want to move to Texas. So I left, I was there about a year and, uh, and maybe a year and a half and, uh, left and called up Max and Eric and said, Hey, Iguana's moving to Texas. I'm not going to go to Texas. And, uh, and so do you guys want to start Condor? And they said, sounds great. And so that was the beginning of, uh, uh, the three of us met in my living room and we made Condor. (laughs) Wow. And, uh, I guess in some aspect, the rest of that is history or well-known history anyway. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. From there it was, we, you know, because I had done these couple of games, I had done Arrow the Acrobat for Acclaim Entertainment. And, I mean, Arrow the Acrobat was for Sunsoft and I had done super high impact football for Acclaim 
and I had done some other stuff. We were working on the NBA Jam game for Acclaim and things like that. Through those connections, I was able to get other development, you know, work for higher development contracts for this new company that we were creating. And we were, uh, did the NFL quarterback club games for the Game Boy and the Game Gear, the, the handheld machines at the time, uh, and uh, as well as then a uh, game from Sunsoft called Justice League Task Force, which was a fighting game on that with the Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, etc. on the uh, on the uh, Sega Genesis. So then, how do you get to being Blizzard and and developing Diablo? Well, um, we had this, like I said, that these couple game contracts and one of them was this this fighting game with the superheroes and right we show up at uh at ces this is before e3 existed before that we would the games industry would show its games off at the consumer electronics show mm-hmm. in vegas and uh we show up to the consumer electronics show with our game our game's gonna be at the booth we're very excited to show it off and uh, and we walk up, and lo and behold, there's another version of the exact same game being published by the same publisher, but it's a completely different studio that's doing the Super Nintendo version of the game. We're doing the Genesis version. They were doing the Super Nintendo version. And uh, the games were really strangely similar. They were wow. <laughs> nearly... In a lot of ways, there there some of the moves were identical and things like that. It was very it was very weird that like neither one of us knew that either one was working on it. It was just like it was we show up and like <laughs> oh my god, there's another version of this game. Wait, why why are there two versions? Why didn't we get both? You know, it's just like it was very strange. And, and anyway, uh, um, and so that team turned out to be uh, a development company called Silicon and Synapse. And, uh, and so we kind of met and they said, oh, we, we're just got acquired and we're going to change our name and we're making a PC game. And I said, oh, well, we really want to make PC games that we, that's what we play the most. That's what I, you know, we're doing these work for hire things to pay the bills and make video games and get experience. But, uh, really what we want to do is we have a PC game that we really love to make. And, uh, and so that's, that's our focus. And so what are you guys doing? And they said, Oh, well, we're showing it off just a couple press people in this little itty bitty room off the side. And so we went and looked at it and that game was Warcraft one. They are changing their name to blizzard. And, uh, and that's how we met. We met at the consumer electronics show over this weird justice league game. Wow. And, and, uh, then we said, well, we got a great PC game idea, but everybody keeps rejecting us. We've, pitched it to like 20 companies and they've all said the same thing. <laughs> RPGs are dead. Uh, you know, they, they, nobody was making RPGs anymore. The RPGs that had come out, like they stopped selling for the most part. People didn't want to play them. They were kind of complicated, long affairs for the most part. And, uh, and they were just, the sales were lackluster. And we thought that we had some solutions to that, but really it was like, you know, they said, okay, well, we'll listen to it. I, we love RPGs and, you know, so come out, you know, we'll come out and listen to your pitch. And right after we finished Warcraft one, so they came out in January and we pitched them Diablo and they fell in love instantly. And, uh, and we signed the contract to make Diablo one about, you know, maybe a month later, sometime in February. Uh, and, uh, that was really the start of the blizzard and blizzard North 
combination in the start of Diablo. What is it like jumping into the deep end, meeting in your living room, building your own company, building Condor? Um, I guess I ask because, you know, there are so many aspiring indie developers out there, uh, you know, trying to do the same thing, trying to, you know, make their Diablo. Um, and obviously times are very different, you know, between when that all happened for you and, you know, the, the state of the industry now in 2016. But what did that feel like going through all of that? What was going through your mind as you were doing that? Well, I mean, I don't think anything's really going through our mind. Our mind was, you know, oh, we would really love to make our dream PC game. And I don't really even care that, you know, how well it sells or whatever. I just wanted the opportunity to make this game that I had dreamed about and I had been designing and working on and modified over the years. Like the original game concept for Diablo was I I made up in high school, you know, and I named the product when I was in high school. It was always called Diablo. Sure. And, uh, you know, it, it was modified over the years as I went through college and things like that and played a lot of, well, games like Rogue. I mean, the original Rogue and other ASCII Unix games or whatever. <laughs> I uh, Like Mori and Angband and, and NetHack and like all these other games. Uh, I, you know, the game kind of modified and was changed slightly, but I always wanted to make this kind of updated version of those games. And, uh, and so here was an opportunity to make kind of our dream game. And if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, that's okay because we had plenty of business that we were getting from, you know, people just wanting to us to do whatever kind of work for hire stuff that we were, you know, pub dev deals for whatever cartridges that we were going to be making. So we had enough work for us. That wasn't really the problem. In fact, uh, we were able to eventually get, even after we started Diablo, uh, we did another contract with uh, 3DO to uh, make a football game for for them, and uh, on their new machine, their second generation machine called the M2, which never saw the light of day because they sold the technology mainly based on our demo uh, uh, for a lot of money, for like over a hundred million dollars to this Japanese company, uh, and you know the, the technology was sold, and uh, and so the project was shut down. But uh, but we. We weren't really afraid of that. We were just really excited about making a company and and having you know having some projects and and uh, and making games and doing exactly what we wanted to do. Whether or not that was going to be a, a cartridge title or whether or not it was going to be a a uh, you know our console. I guess you say now, but the uh, you know console title or or a PC title. It was an opportunity to make our dream game. And it was just something that we had been wanting for so long. It was just, uh, you know, we were felt really lucky. Finally, I mean, we, it took a long time for somebody to say yes. I mean, we, we pitched this many times. And uh, for somebody to do it, that that was just great. And we didn't even care that, that the fact that they were going to pay us basically almost nothing <laughs> to make this game. It didn't matter because we just wanted to make the game so badly. Uh, you know, we were bad businessmen, that's for sure. Uh, we were... <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so we, uh, you know, I think it, things are a little bit different now. I think they're, they're better and they're worse in, in some ways they're, they're better because now you can make a company and you can get your games distributed because there are large distribution platforms. That was not the case back then. Like making a game for a console required, uh, you know, it, it was an art because, for the publisher because 
they had cartridges, and cartridges were really expensive to to make, and so it was it was a very difficult thing to do. Like it was just out of there was no way I could afford it. Like you'd have to raise a lot of money to actually buy and manufacture all these cartridges, and so the cartridges would take tons of money to make, and then they it, it, it was a really difficult problem because you could make too many cartridges and then all your profits are eaten up because you, you you made too many you didn't sell enough to to actually have the profitability or if you didn't make enough then uh you left a bunch of money on the table because the cartridges sold out and nobody could buy them anywhere and you could have sold more and it takes so long it took like three months or four months to manufacture these cartridges and ship them on a boat from china you know it took months for them to manufacture these and, and bring them over here so it was it was kind of this art form of whether or not you were going to be able to manufacture the right amount and it was a very difficult thing to do and so that was just kind of out of our hands at the, at that time the idea of self-publishing especially on the console was just it was it was impossible and uh and so now with advents like steam or the the app store on for you know apple or google or whatever you know, being able to publish your game now is a lot easier than it has ever been, which is great. But then, obviously, the disadvantage there is now everybody can do it. <laughs> you know? right. So there, there are a lot of people doing it because it's a lot easier now. So Condor becomes Blizzard North. You start making Diablo. And what is that process like at that point? You're making your dream game. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it was exciting, that's for sure. I mean, we couldn't believe that we had gotten the contract, and we were super excited around the office to be making this product. Uh, We had to finish up kind of some of our other contracts that we were working on and kind of finish up the Justice League and some of the quarterback club stuff that we had been working on. And... uh, how many of there are you at this point? Are there still the three of you? There's probably... No, no, no. There was... Uh, like, we started out with the three of us, but we pretty quickly hired a couple other people uh, uh, to do the Justice League game. Uh, you know, that we we needed a really good cartoon artist, you know, that can make the... Uh, the uh, I wouldn't say cartoon, but super her- heroic kind of uh, art form. So we hired a, a great uh, artist there, uh, Michi Okamura, and we had uh, a, a pr- another programmer, and uh, and uh, I don't remember when we hired Matt, but uh, he was pretty early too, Matt Ullman, uh, the musician. Yeah. And uh, and so I mean, it was Rick and myself and Michio and uh and Matt and Max and Eric. So it was probably we were probably eight ish, ten ish pretty early and by the time we got extra jobs we were in the 15 range by the time i think that we got the diablo contract okay um so we were under 20 for i think most of diablo one but we had several projects going on we had the quarterback club stuff we had the we'd finished up the justice league we're doing diablo we're doing this nfl game for uh for 3do so we had several projects going on at once was that a pretty stressful time then when you were putting all these things together? It was together? incredibly stressful because, <laughs> as I've said, we were really bad businessmen. We signed some bad deals. So the, uh, you know, but it was, you know, I didn't know anything about business. I wasn't, I, I was, I was a computer science major. I didn't know the first thing about business. 
And uh, we actually got some people to come in and help us out towards the end uh, with the business stuff just because we were just so bad at it. Uh, and uh, and so that, that helped a lot. Uh, but it was still very, very um, difficult because we didn't really know what we were doing. And we were, uh, you know, I think that... We couldn't manage our books very well. We signed some bad contracts. We, you know, we were running out of money constantly. It was super stressful. It was like, you know, it, it, we didn't really ever run out of money. I don't think the employees knew that we were, I mean, employees kind of knew that it was a dicey situation, but they didn't know that it was like we were as close as we were. Like the day before we're getting that check to actually, you know, clear all the paychecks and things like that. I mean, it was, it was sketchy. So the, uh, and we, we had like, stop paying some of our taxes and stuff. I mean, it was, it was a bad scene. Oh, wow. So anyway, we kind of cleaned that all up. And, uh, and so they, when Blizzard approached us and said, Hey, we'd like to, you know, acquire you guys and make you part of Blizzard. We're like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it was, it was definitely a blessing. All right. So then you are acquired, you are Blizzard North. And you are um, making Diablo. And I guess the next thing is Diablo comes out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess. I mean, there was a lot of things in between there. But, yeah, the, uh, you know, we, I guess we really knew, like, again, we, we were like, maybe maybe we can sell 20,000 copies of this game. And if we could, then maybe we'll be able to make a second one. And uh, And so... You know, all our hopes were that if we can just sell 20,000, imagine selling 100,000 copies of this game. That would be amazing. That would be absolutely incredible. We had these dreams that it was like, we just get to 20,000, we're good. 40,000, I can almost guarantee that they're going to they're gonna make a, we'll, we'll get a sequel out of this. And, uh, and so we had kind of these hopes and dreams. But, you know, the reality was we were just hoping that, it, that people would like it. And if they, if they, enjoyed it then you know that was going to be the big thing so we made a bunch of changes late like we invented BattleNet about six months before the game was done um and uh and changed the game to multiplayer and added invent you know added BattleNet and all this kind of stuff and uh uh you know we came out with a demo disc uh right in kind of in the September time frame, somewhere right in there, September or October, there was there were two demo discs. One that was, um, you know, we had originally, DirectX was a brand new thing at the time, and right. they wanted us to make DirectX stuff, you know, get away from DOS and go onto Windows and make a DirectX game. But there had been kind of Windows had had a push before that, uh, with a different product that didn't work, and so there were people were a little hesitant to adopt DirectX, and they said, "Well, we're gonna make a CD, and if you guys convert it to DirectX, we'll put it on, you know, a couple million CDs that we're gonna put at game stores and stuff that people can get your demo for free." We're like, "Oh God, yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> we'll we'll change to DirectX then." Uh, and uh, so that demo came out, and then it was also in the on a PC gamer, uh, the demo was in, in the, you know, uh, sometimes in the old magazines, like, uh, like PC gamer, they would come with a CD with a disc full of like demos or little mini games or things like that. And, uh, so we had the Diablo demo on that disc and we got a ton of great feedback from that. Uh, and that really 
allowed us we knew that once that came out and it was getting kind of the buzz that it was getting and stuff that uh, that we kind of felt like oh there was a good chance that this game was going to sell the 40,000 copies that we wanted to make a, a second one and that we may have a hit on our hands and we'll see uh, but uh, it, you know we got some great feedback from that made some critical changes I think at the end and uh, and the game came out uh, the last day of of 1996. So you get the name out there, you do the the demos right, it goes out with PC Gamer, and uh, and then it releases. What's the immediate response? Well, the immediate response is positive. I mean, people are really excited about the game and loving it. Um, <clears throat> but probably within a week or two, you know, then it was, it went from that to... You know, it, before this, people really didn't, you know, it's like, oh, we, we're going to come out with this game. And yeah, the game's peer-to-peer and you can play with your friends. And people were loving that. And the fact that it was built into the game, you know, and it was free. Like, people were just really feeling the love towards Blizzard. This is a very unusual thing to do. We were kind of giving away tons of value in the box. And, and people really appreciated that. And... um you know, I think that we said, oh, we're going to do this peer-to-peer thing where you can play with your friends. and uh, But none of us stopped to really realize that, well, you know, we knew that people could cheat doing peer-to-peer. But it was, it was like, oh, well, if somebody wants to ruin their game and cheat, it, you know, they're not going to be able to do it online because not everybody's going to have the cheat. They're going to cheat and they're going to, you know, who cares? They're going to kind of ruin their experience for themselves. But it's just a couple hackers there's what percentage of our audience is going to be like this that can even do these kind of things it's going to be a small percentage it's going to be you know maybe 0.5 percent of the audience can has the capability to even do this so it doesn't matter uh you know it's not going to be a big deal but then i mean we didn't think about it and oh my god they can just upload their cheat onto the internet and everybody can get it. And that was the, <laughs> was like this realization, oh my God, everybody's going to have the cheat now. Not just that one person that made it. Oh my God, this is a disaster. So, uh, you know, we were very <laughs> saddened by the fact that there was the rampant cheating in Diablo 1, but, you know, we were very proud of the product. And it got really high, you know, marks and Game of the Year awards and sold like gangbusters and it was just I mean it was it was an unbelievable thing the disadvantage was that obviously it became kind of a synonymous almost a meme of of what how how to not release an RPG on the internet so <laughs> <laughs> uh but it was you know it was it, again it, that didn't really deter people from playing it and enjoying it and and loving the product and uh so you know it, we were very proud that we were able to create such an amazing product together it was uh it was a really amazing experience so then does Blizzard come to you pretty quickly and say, okay, make a second one? Yeah, no, it was it was obvious that that's what they wanted to do. And we said no, uh, and uh, we didn't want to. Uh, and it was mainly because I was just so burnt out. We had spent so much time, uh, you know, working. I had worked every day for maybe seven or eight months uh, and without a break. And at most days... I, I'm kind of a workaholic anyway, but the uh, most days I was working maybe 10, 12 hours a day uh, every day, and that and that and that was not a great thing, especially because my wife 
at the time was pregnant. <laughs> oh wow! And uh, as I tried to finish up the project, actually, my child was born three days after, four days after Diablo uh, Diablo came out. The um, and so uh, you know, it was a really busy, crazy time for me with a newborn, and like I had this product, and I was trying to fix bugs in it and and take care of the baby, and like a. And so I, I just didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with anything really uh, at that time. I was, I was pretty burnt out. I had worked a lot and I was exhausted. And, and so they came to us and said, hey, we sh- you guys are going to make Diablo 2. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even want to go near that right now. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I would say within three months or four months uh, after the product, then we started talking about it more and more. And some of the other ideas that we had were like, ah, that's just not as good as making a second Diablo we love Diablo and imagine we could fix the cheating and they, you know, we could put in running, you know, everybody hates running out to the, you're walking out to the, to the witch way out there in the middle of nowhere. And <laughs> we, you know, there, there are a lot of really fun things that we started to think and dream about is like, okay, well, you know, I think that, I think that we should probably do a second one of these. It's, I think that's a good idea. So they, uh, you know, eventually by, I would say less than six months after I'd say you know, four or five months after that, we started in earnest in designing and making Diablo 2. Let me uh, ask you a side question while we're here. A lot of indie developers now, I'm I'm sure, you know, working you know, separate jobs, they're not fully committed to their, you know, developing their game, uh, you know, working 80 hours a week, working, you know, every day a week for months, trying to get their dream project out there, I'm sure suffer burnout. What oh, sort yeah. of... Uh, I guess things did you learn when you were so burned out making your dream project? What was that like afterwards? Uh, well, again, I think that it was it was brutal. Uh, and in fact, the the crunch for Diablo two was even worse than the crunch for Diablo one. Um, and uh, you know, I was I was burnt out, really burnt out both times. Um, and uh, and so I think that. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to balance it much better now as a, as a game developer than I have in the past. But I, I think that inevitably, I I I thrive under kind of that stress uh, that I I tend to do my best work under those kind of circumstances. And so, though I hate it, and though I don't recommend it, and though it is life destroying it also really helps me focus and have a purpose and feel the pressure to actually finish something and uh and for me it's kind of a motivator uh and it's a bad motivator to have i'm not saying that people should do this uh but it, it, there's a definite pay you know that the the payment afterwards is that i just you know i i am i'm done i'm spent i've i've done everything that i can to get to where we were and now I cannot go any further. And so I think that in the end, it's not the best solution. The better solution is to moderate how much you're working, give yourself a day off every now and then, uh, make sure that you have time to, you know, have a relationship with people outside of your work and, uh, and make sure that you have a little bit more balanced life. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard and you shouldn't do the things that, you know, you should be able to pursue your dreams. Uh, but if you do it at the expense of everything else, uh, it will come back to haunt you. Uh, you will definitely be burnt out when people need you the most. Now, today, especially uh, with, you know, when a product comes out, people want and expect you to be 
uh, you know, communicating with the audience and and talking about things that you're going to change or that are upcoming or that are, uh, you know, I'm going to fix this in a patch or on the message boards or on Twitter or whatever it is, that however you're communicating with your audience and and expect feedback and, and things like that. And, and so it was a little different back then because, there, you know, internet boards were much nerdier than they are now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they were, uh, you know, they didn't have instant access like Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. So... Um, it was kind of a different different ball of wax then. There was a little bit of time that you could kind of... But now I think it's more important than ever to get out there. And, you know, there's a lot of games that have day one patch or first week patch and things like that. So if you're burnt out, by the time you get to the end, then you're not going to do yourself or your product any good. Uh, you know, you've got to... Because really, that's when it begins. You know, the, the, the it's not when it ends anymore. And uh, there's especially like in any kind of game that's going to have service or ongoing things, uh, ongoing content or whatever. Uh, you, that's the start of your marathon, not the, not the end. So you got to make sure that you're pacing yourself and not burning yourself out so that when you're done, you're, you are spent and it's over for you. So, of course, this is Indie Insider, the podcast about indie video games. So you started as an indie developer. You make Condor. Um, and then you get acquired, right? And you make your dream game. Jump ahead a little bit, you end up going back to being indie, right? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that story, about your... Sure. Um, uh, about about you know, meeting Blizzard? After we left, um, after I left Blizzard North, uh, we made Flagship Studios and uh, made a game called Hellgate London. Uh, that was not super well received, but I mean, people really liked it, but they didn't like the, the fact that, it, that people felt it was buggy and it wasn't really finished. And it was true. It wasn't really finished, uh, <laughs> but uh, it had been, you know, so long in development that, uh, we didn't, we didn't have a choice. We had to release really. And it was kind of, there were a lot of factors as to why that that happened, but it was what it was. And I'm still really proud of the great game. I think that, I think it is really a game that was really ahead of its time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that people look back and see that now, but, uh, again, I think that people were upset with me for releasing that too early for a while. And then, um, and then I went from that flagship studios fell apart and then I went to, uh, I wanted to get back to being a developer. I want. I didn't want to be kind of, you know, having the weight of the company on my shoulders. Uh, Flagship Studios got to be really big. It was like 120 plus people. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so I didn't want to get back into making those, that giant game and raising tons of money and, and all the pressure and the stress and stuff. I wanted to not be the boss anymore. I wanted to go back to, because um, I was the boss at Blizzard North. Uh, I was the president there. And then I was... Uh, the chief visionary officer at Flagship Studios. We had several bosses, um, but I was obviously one of the bosses there. And uh, and then I said, well, I, I want to go back and I want to be a designer mainly. And uh, I realized when I did Flagship Studios that I had done, I had done like five jobs poorly instead of one job well. And uh, so I wanted to really focus on on design and, and making a product. So I went to this company called Gazillion, uh, where my friend John Romero, who was working there, and uh, he, uh, and so they were doing a, a Marvel game, and I love Marvel, and so it was like, oh, I want to be the creative director on this Marvel project, 
And I got there and the company, uh, after a little while, it was obvious that the company was not in good shape <laughs> and had some problems. And so I started speaking up about them and they said, okay, well, you be in charge then. <laughs> and uh, so they, they kept promoting me <laughs> and eventually I became CEO of the company. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, and then I'm not really, when I'm the CEO of a company that, especially a company that's got large investors and, and had raised a ton of capital, I had, uh, you know, they, they, I, I was not really doing much development. I was kind of half giving design advice, but that was really about it. And, uh, and I wasn't programming anymore. I wasn't really intimately involved in the, in the, in the day-to-day design stuff or, or whatever. I just, I couldn't be, there was a company with 350 people and, and, you know, I, I was running a business and, um, and so, you know, we had to go through a big transition with Gazillion it was exhausting and super stressful and not really making games. And, you know, I'm after doing it for six years, I said to myself, why am I doing this? You know, I, I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't go well, someday. I want to be a CEO of a company I, <laughs> when I was <laughs> and deal with, you know, investors and things like that all the time. I, I, I want to make games and I want to get back to making games. So I said, well, I, I'm kind of done here. I, I, we made Marvel Heroes. It got out the door. It was a rough start, but we really turned it around and raised our Metacritic, you know, 35 points. And it was just like, it was, we really turned the game around. It, it was making money and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out. Uh, I think that I've accomplished a lot here, but I'm, uh, I think the company's in a good enough state now that I can actually get back to doing what I love, which is making games. And so... I left and I said, well, I, I'm going to make games. And in fact, I, I'm just going to do it by myself. I, I, <laughs> I can do it all. So I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not the best artist, but I'm sure that I can work on my skills and I can become better. And I, uh, uh, you know, and if I need to hire somebody, I could hire an artist, but I for sure can make the music and I can program and I can do all these other things. So I'm going to go make my own game and I'm going to start doing the things that I love again. And so I left and I made Greybeard Games. I was really inspired, I think, mostly by, uh, by my friend Eric Schaefer, uh, Eric uh, was working with Max still at a and this guy named Travis Baldry uh, that at this company called Runic they had made Torchlight and Torchlight Two mm-hmm. and uh, and so Eric and Travis left and they were making this made this new company called Double Damage Games and they were making Rebel Galaxy and it was just the two of them making this product and I'm like yeah I want to get back to actually doing it. I want to actually you know you guys have inspired me to to do my own thing that it's that you're, it's you're capable of making games just as a small crew and I want to get back to actually being involved in every decision and doing the coding and doing the things I loved and that's that was really my inspiration for doing it yeah living the indie dream right yeah absolutely and you know I'm I'm in a position where I can afford to do it and I'm very lucky and uh and uh you know I think that this is a great opportunity for me and it's and it's I, you know, I'm going to do the things that I really enjoy rather than, you know, necessarily just being the boss. I mean, sure, I'm still the boss because I'm the only person here. <laughs> but the but uh, but you know, I, there aren't long arguments between myself and myself. So uh, that 
I mean, that's true and not true. I do wrestle with decisions in my head all the time, but the, um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not the kind of company where there's hundreds of people and I need to, you know, and play boss instead of, uh, instead of, uh, actually being a game maker. Are you happier now doing Greybeard being, you know, doing your own thing? Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know about happier. It's just it's a different experience, and I'm I'm super happy doing what I'm I'm, I'm doing. I, I loved working at Gazillion. I loved the people that worked there with me, and uh, and I really loved the company a lot. Uh, you know, it was just it was for me. It was like I want to get back to actually doing what I really truly makes me the happiest. You know, is actually creating. And, uh, and so here was an opportunity to do that. And so that's, that's, and I'm super happy doing what I'm doing. And I'm really, really happy with the progress I've been making. And I'm really happy with my game idea. And, uh, so I, I, you know, it's, it's really, it's coming along nicely. Well, let's go ahead. We're now to present day, David Brevik. Um, go ahead and tell me about Greybeard Games and about the projects you're currently working on. Sure. Uh, I can't divulge too much, but the, you know, I, I am working on because again, I'm a bad businessman, and I don't know. <laughs> I'm actually working on two different products because that's just really a terrible idea, and uh, and really, I, I'm I'm kind of half working or a quarter working on one project. It's kind of I'm making little demos and things like that, kind of on a as a side thing, but uh, mainly focused on on one project and the product I'm working on really surprised me because it wasn't, I had not planned it started out doing this. It, I'm actually making, I'm making a phone game, which I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I making a phone game? <laughs> uh, and, but, it, but I just, I kept coming back to this game idea that I wanted to do. And, uh, and it just seemed like the most fun. So I'm, I, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. And God knows, I know that there's supposed to be like, I don't know, half a million or something different games on the app <laughs> store or whatever. So, it, you know, it's impossible to stand out, but I'm having a really good time doing the thing that I love, which is actually creating a game. And, and, and though it is on the, the phone, I play tons of phone games. And this is the thing that, you know, that I, I, you know, I think that I played almost more phone games than almost anything else in the last couple of years. And, uh, it's just because it's with me, you know, as I'm standing in line doing something, or if I'm like <clears throat> out and about waiting for somebody, I have got, a, I've got a gaggle of kids. Uh, and so it, like, I got to drive them around all over the damn place and stuff. So it's <laughs> like, you know, it, 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 uh, you know, I'm constantly waiting at something for some activity or whatever, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, it's easy to have your phone with you and play something. And so I've really kind of become a real phone game, uh, I guess, a person that, that enjoys that kind of gaming. And there's a lot of, a lot of short session stuff that I really enjoy. I still play a lot of PC games and I still, uh, you know, have played a lot of indie stuff in the last, uh, couple years. Well, it's probably longer than that now, but, uh, I, you know, I think that, PC gaming is my gaming that I do at night, but but phone gaming is the gaming I do during the day, and uh, you know I think that uh, that I had this idea and I just kind of ran with it. It's an RPG uh, as a we may come as a big surprise to everybody, <laughs> and uh, and it's there's nothing there out there that's even close to like it's almost impossible actually. It takes me about 
for people that I've told, which is a very small amount of people, for people I've told, it takes me about 15 minutes to even explain how the game works. So it's the, uh, it's, uh, I got to come up with an elevator pitch on how to, <laughs> how, how, how to explain the game, but it's, uh, it's very different than anything else that I've ever made. I mean, it is, and it's not, it's still, it's still an RPG, but it's, uh, and it still has some randomness and things like that, but it's, uh, um, but it's different. It's a different kind of RPG than anything else that's out there. And it's, I'm, I'm excited about it, and it's, it's coming along nicely. And I think that I'm getting close to what I would consider to be like a vertical slice, which is every part of the game is working. Uh, you know, every, uh, you know, all the different types of experiences that you can have with it are, are all in there. And I'm just mainly fleshing out levels and things like that afterwards that, uh, that would really, you know, extra let's say monsters and items and things like that, that would uh, kind of extend the, uh, the, the gameplay uh, is really kind of the next step. So I'm very close to that kind of vertical slice, I think is, uh, is where I am in the development phase. All right, audience. It has monsters. It's a mobile game. This is what we know about it. <laughs> and it's very weird and almost impossible for me to describe. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll all keep our eyes peeled. Um, and you said you're working on one other game, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I'm also working on a PC game, uh, also an RPG. Uh, and uh, the PC game, uh, you know, is further out. It, it, I won't, I'm going to finish this phone game, I think, first before I, I move on to, to making the RPG. But uh, uh, the PC game, I mean. And, uh, but that's also, uh, I'm very excited about that idea as well. I think that uh, they're... I mean that's that's the reason I'm working on it at all is because I'm excited by the idea and it's you know it's so it's uh, it's fun. You are doing the indie dev thing now. You're working on your own. What does a typical day look like for you now? Is it do you work on games every day? Yeah, I do. I mean I, that's all at my spare time. Uh, I not really spare time, but I mean it's like my any time that I'm not shuttling kids around or doing whatever I'm working on the game it's 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 weird it's a weird experience because I've always worked in an office with other people um all of my professional career so I would say that I'm having um in some ways it's wonderful in some ways it's terrible uh I think that the the cartoonist the oatmeal recently had a, a thing about working from home and what it's like, you know, the advantages and disadvantages. And uh, the advantage is like, you know, I can, I, I can get up in the morning and I don't have to put pants on and I can go program. You know, it's like, you know, that, and that's awesome. But that's also the disadvantage. It's like, you know, that I, I, <laughs> I, you know I've got, I've, I'm unkempt and I've like, you know, my beard's down to my waist and like, what am I doing? You know, I'm some bum down here in my basement, you know, the, <laughs> like, uh, and so yeah, I've lost all social skills. The, uh, and so, you know, you aren't getting interrupted by somebody telling you about, you know, whatever, the, you know, some experience that they had, but, you know, which is fun bonding with people, but it's not. But, you know, so it's incredibly lonely and uh, incredibly wonderful in that I can focus and I can work on exactly what I want to work on. So, I don't know, it's a very strange, it's it's weird having been in kind of a uh, standard business kind of uh, working at a company where we worked, you know, 
set hours or set ish hours where you had to come in, let's say before 10 o'clock or something like that. And you left after six ish or whatever it was, you know, for years and years and years, I've been doing that. And now, uh, you know, there are no rules. And in fact, I have several of my kids are homeschooled and so like I'm running them all over to activities and stuff. So in the middle of the day, I'm working on something. I got to go take some kids somewhere or whatever, you know, and like I got to help them out with whatever. And that's wonderful, but it's also, you know, a little weird. It's, it's weird to be at home, uh, and also trying to work. And it's really took me, it took me six months really to kind of get into any kind of rhythm, uh, and I, but I really feel like I am finally getting to a place where I feel like I can be very creative and very productive and be a dad and have this, you know, other part of my life that, uh, that I can, you know, participate in and, and, uh, and adjust to. I mean, the fact is it's, it's a different type of distraction. It's a family distraction rather than office distraction. Uh, but uh, it's still, uh, you know, I still have other things in my life and other responsibilities in my life besides just work. So trying to separate that, that I think that that like when I first started out, I thought, oh, I'm just going to go to work and I'll work. And, uh, you know, it's like my, my dream scenario. Nobody will interrupt me. I get to do whatever I want all day <laughs> and I can focus on on working on this thing for 12 hours a day and like. It just never happened, and I don't think that there that really is a reality anymore. Especially like I just don't think that that can that happen with the way my life is right now. So anyway, I'm super happy doing what I'm doing, but it's taken an adjustment period. And I think that the thing that I miss the most is the interaction with other people. Uh, and there's no reason that I have to keep uh, Greybeard Games being just one person. I'm doing it off just because <laughs> out of almost principle at this point. But I, you know, <laughs> it's kind of stupid. I don't know why I'm not, I haven't. I should go out and get some other people to interact with or whatever and uh, and and have them contribute. I think that, you know, that the hardest things is deciding whether or not something should go in the game or not go in the game. And am I making the right decisions? Because I'm a super experienced designer at this point, And so I've got 17 answers for every little problem. And it's like, which one of these 17 is the best? Well, they're all about the same. They're all... There's advantages and disadvantages to all of them. How do I, <laughs> how do I, and sometimes it takes somebody to kind of think outside the box or suggest something different or whatever. And so not having that kind of interaction with other people has been, I, I think that the hardest part and kind of the lonely, loneliest part. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I appreciate it. We, I've taken up plenty of your time already. So I'm going to just ask you a couple of last questions, if that's all right. Absolutely. But the broad questions. So good luck. give me your thoughts on and we talked about this a little bit already but give me your thoughts on the indie video game scene now with digital distribution with how open and accessible it's becoming um you mentioned earlier that you know there are it's kind of a double-edged sword good things and bad things what do you think about indie video games now well, I, I think that indie video games are here to stay. Uh, just like every other kind of creative industry, you're going to have indie writers, you're going to have indie musicians, you're going to have indie, you know, movie makers. You know, they're, they're, like they're, every kind of creative endeavor has this, uh, has this, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, has this uh, uh, kind of way that, that people go out and do things on their own as a small group or an individual. And so 
uh, I think that it's important for them to, you know, for that to be part of the creative process. Because a lot of times in the bigger in the bigger games, you're going to get run into situations where people, um, you know, there just isn't as much creativity in the giant companies. There's uh, there. The people are, you know, can't take the kind of risks that you can take with an indie developer. And so it's important to maintain that, uh, that, you know, I think indie, indie makes creative things. They can take more risks. They can do things that, bigger companies can't do. And so it's here to stay. It makes, uh, because of the digital distribution, people can have success and massive success. Uh, and, uh, so there's no reason not to try it, right? You know, that you're going to get creative things. You're going to get games that push the envelope in many different directions, new types of games that can't be done because the, the risk is so low. I mean, a lot of times indie developers are people that, that are, you know, these are their first kind of products and they're, um, they're willing to take the risks. They, they have the ability to, I don't know, whatever, uh, you know, they're, they're individuals who don't have much in terms of expenses or things like that. And so they're able to kind of put themselves out there and, and take a risk and do something different and, uh, and kind of sacrifice for that, that greater goal. And, and so I don't see it going away. And I think that it's, it's healthy and it's good. And it, tons of creativity come out of it and a lot of times they're really my favorite games in a lot of ways uh, i think that uh, the indie gaming scene is is better than ever and uh, i think the quality has increased over the years and i think that uh, we'll we'll continue to see see it for a long time so david of course at the end of every indie insider episode i asked my guests to uh, gather up all their stories and experiences and their thoughts and share with the audience a piece of advice, uh, something that they've learned, something that they can impart on those aspiring developers out there um, that might help them as they make their own dream games. Well, that's a big, uh, big question. But uh, I guess, I, I mean, I think that for me, I hear oftentimes hear people say, oh, I've got this great game idea. I would really like to make this game. Oh, someday I want to be, I want to make video games. Uh, and to them, I say often, no, you don't. The reason is, is because they aren't doing it. The difference between being a game maker and not being a game maker is actually making a game. (laughs) And, uh, and so if you want to make a game, prioritize that as part of your life, do the things that it's going to take to make the game that you want to make. And that means whatever it is, uh, going out and getting funding or going out and finding a partner or, you know, meeting people online or whatever, they're going to help you make this dream game or, uh, uh, you know, just doing it yourself and making a demo or whatever it is. So actually making a game and doing the work is the key part. The difference between a game maker and not a game maker or a dreamer is the actual doing. And so sticking with it, finishing your product, the hardest part is finishing, finishing that project, starting something and finishing it and actually doing, you know, making games is, is really the, the, the best advice that I can give. 
Uh, and because I think that that's where a great majority of the people fall down is that they, they have these ideas, but they don't make them a reality because they aren't actually doing them. And so going out in there and doing it and finishing it and sticking with it and believing in yourself, uh, is, are the, those are the big keys. I like it. It's sound advice. Um, this has been Indie Insider. Uh, of course, this is the podcast where I sit and talk with indie video game developers, publishers, and industry professionals about their projects, their stories, and their advice for others. Of course, what you just heard from David Brevik. Um, David, the creator of Diablo, uh, gosh, father of MMORPGs, um, founder of Greybeard Games. Um, David, thank you so much for being on and chatting with me today. I really do appreciate it. It was fun. I had a really good time. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, this podcast is presented by Black Shell Media. Um, they are an indie publishing and marketing firm out there to just help people make their games. Um, so, of course, you can find them online, blackshellmedia.com, or on Twitter, at blackshellmedia. If you want to be a part of the show, or uh, send in your thoughts, or comments, or recommend somebody to be on the show, shoot me an email, logan at blackshellmedia.com, or of course, find me on Twitter, at Logan A. Schultz. I'm happy to connect. Uh, David, if people want to follow you, follow your work, um, follow, you know, the exciting updates on Greybeard Games, how do they find you on those interwebs? Yeah, I mainly I'm a Twitter person, so uh, if you follow me on Twitter, it, my I'm Dave. It's really complicated. It's David Brevik, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter, and then I have Greybeard Games as well. And Gray with an A is, is Greybeard Games. Of course, the alliteration. That's what he's going. Yes, Greybeard Games. Awesome. Well, David, again, thank you so much for being on. And uh, we'll see you next Monday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 